All right, I'm here with Kevin Kiley. He's a California state legislator, and he is one of the legislators who is suing Governor Gavin Newsom for his overreach of, of power. Um, and I'll let you explain all of that. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. And I'd like to just start by if you could if you could just tell me what your lawsuit is all about. And I should say it's it's you and Assemblyman James Gallagher um, who are who are um, taking this action. What That's is right. the lawsuit all about? Well, the lawsuit is about uh, the basic idea that we do not have uh, an autocracy in California, or at least we're not supposed to, <laughs> where you have uh, one person ruling the state by decree, because that's uh, unfortunately the reality we've been living with uh, for going on eight months now. And uh, what our lawsuit does is it challenges one particular order, but uh, one particular executive order, but the goal is to get a precedent and an injunction or a uh, restraining order, basically, uh, where the, the governor is forbidden from issuing any further uh, orders like this in the future that really usurp the role of the legislature and exceed the powers that he's granted under our state's constitution. And so would that, if, if that succeeds, and if you get this, this effective restraining order, what effect would that have on the other existing orders, like the lockdown orders mm -hmm. and the mandatory masks and that, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really depends on how broadly the, the, the judge uh, crafts uh, her order. And uh, you know, if, if we do in fact win the case and we're still awaiting the ruling right now, uh, you know, she could uh, rule for us on very narrow grounds. She could rule for us on, on very broad grounds. I mean, the, the broadest possible outcome, which is one of the, the out possible outcomes of the case, not the most likely outcome, but one of the possible outcomes is that the entire Emergency Services Act is struck down as unconstitutional. If that were to happen, then all of the emergency orders uh, would immediately uh, be terminated. Of course, the governor would then try to appeal. Um, mm -hmm. I think that a perhaps more likely outcome is that uh, the judge, um, uh, you know, restrains the governor from issuing orders like the one that we're challenging, which I think would probably call into question maybe half of them or so that he's done so far. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it's really, uh, the judge has a lot of discretion in this sense, because it's an equitable remedy, meaning that we're seeking to not only have her say that one particular order was unlawful, but to restrain him, to order him not to do that again. And when a judge exercises powers of that kind, you know, the judge has a lot of discretion as to how exactly uh, to go about it. Okay. And are you able to say anything about your, your sentiments regarding this judge? Do you, do you feel like it's likely this judge will rule in your favor? Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I was pretty optimistic coming out of the trial, uh, which was last Wednesday. Uh, I thought that we were able to present our case as we wanted. I think the law is on our side. The facts are on our side. Uh, you know, the judge seemed to make some favorable comments that you can never really read too much into that. Um, we haven't gotten a ruling yet, which we're kind of hoping to get by now, but uh, I think it's going to come any day. And, uh, you know, we're hopeful. And beyond that, I'm not sure I can venture too much of a prediction. Yeah. It's, it's encouraging, though, that there was a similar lawsuit brought in Michigan and that there was a favorable ruling there. Do, do you, is, there a, is there a strong parallel between what you're doing and, and what was done there? Uh, very much so. And we've uh, certainly brought that case to the judge's attention. Uh, because in Michigan, uh, the Emergency Services Act, or they actually call it their Emergency Powers of the Governor's Act, uh, was indeed struck down as unconstitutional. Uh, so uh, here in California, you know, we have a somewhat similar law, which the governor, uh, which Newsom has been using as the basis for his 
uh, autocratic uh, one-man rule. Um, but you know, our argument is that actually uh, he's not allowed to do the sort of things he's been doing, uh, even according to that law, uh, even though it's pretty broad. It's not as broad as he's interpreting it, and it's not as broad as the Michigan law. Uh, which basically did give the governor there the power to do whatever she wanted. So uh, we've basically given the judge two options. We've said, look, if uh, the um, if the law we have in California is actually a narrower law than the one they have in Michigan, then the governor has been exceeding his authority under that law because he's been acting like it's as broad as the one in Michigan. So you should strike down on his disorder and, and a lot of the other ones are legally deficient uh, because they uh, exceed the powers granted to him under the Emergency Services Act. So that's one way the judge could rule for us. She could say, okay, the governor has been exceeding even the powers granted by the Emergency Services Act. On the other hand, if uh, the governor is right that the Emergency Services Act gives him the sort of autocratic powers that he's been exercising, well, at that point, it would be the same thing as what happened in Michigan. And we say the whole law should be struck down because under the Constitution, whether it's ours or Michigan's, uh, you can't uh, give that kind of power to a governor through uh, any particular law, even an emergency law. So I kind of, we kind of view it as a heads, uh, you know, you lose tails, we win scenario because yeah. uh, however the uh, scope of this particular statute gets interpreted, uh, there's no way that the governor's actions can stand under our constitution. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't think so. How long has the Emergency Service Act, Services Act been in place? Uh, 50 years. 50 years. Okay. And, um, you you mentioned in um, I, in one of your blog posts I think that this was this is really unprecedented that even with fifty years of other governors and plenty of emergencies in California plenty of things that could be considered you know life threatening et cetera et cetera that this is really an unprecedented power grab is that is that true no other governors have have overstepped in this way yeah that's exactly right and they have not produced any examples of any governor in mm -hmm. California history ever making use of this act in anything close to the way uh, that uh, Gavin Newsom has. Uh, you know, when you look at the way previous governors have used the act, they've used it to, well, respond to emergencies, you know, to mobilize the resources uh, of the state government and to coordinate different agencies to deal with earthquakes and wildfires and medfly infestations and what have you. But what Gavin Newsom has done is very different. He's used this statute as a pretext to sort of make any and all laws that he wants uh, with the stroke of a pen and completely cut the legislative branch uh, out of our government. In fact, he has made the claim in court several times that the Emergency Services Act, quote, centralizes the state's powers in the hands of the governor. That's actually, I mean, you know, wow. they proclaim the state to be an autocracy. Uh, wow. In fact, I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm saying that rhetorically. That's exactly what he has That's said. And so he has found this uh, provision in the Emergency Services Act. Uh, it's, what is it, 8621, uh, which uh, he cites in, I think, 24 of his executive orders. And he claims that this particular provision is what gives him unlimited plenary authority to govern, is the way he puts it. And no other governor that he's provided any example of has ever cited that particular provision. So we have, right. uh, you know, the governor seems to have uh, discovered you know, a bottomless well yeah. uh, of authority uh, within the act that escaped the notice of every prior governor 
and all of the courts that ever have ever examined the California Emergency Services Act, they've never mentioned this provision either. So again, going back to the sort of uh, dilemma the governor's in, if this is true that this provision gives him this sort of authority, then it's an unconstitutional right. law. There's no way that can be constitutional. <laughs> yeah. That's, so we, another question I had sort of a, an aside is you are... Do you have do you have legal training? Are you a lawyer by training? Okay, because you're you're doing your own representation here. You didn't hire outside lawyers. Can, what was your thinking behind that? Well, so me and uh, Assemblymember Gallagher, we both are you know, lawyers by training, and uh, but we thought it was important that we would be we're in pro per litigants, no, you know, representing ourselves because we're really standing up for our branch of government. Uh, and for the people of California who are completely left out of the process when a governor is ruling uh, by decree as an autocrat. And so, you know, we thought that uh, it was important that we actually personally be the ones uh, to make the argument so that we're sort of there, you know, in our capacity as both legislators and as advocates uh, in order to, uh, you know, make the case in as compelling a way as we can. Of course, the governor, you know, we've invited him to be there personally, but just sent his lawyers at the attorney general. He's got other things to do, I guess. Right. Life's tough when you're king. Um, How has the rest of the legislature responded to to Newsom's actions and what's sort of the feeling among among everybody else in the legislature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, you've had a couple of folks on the other side of the aisle who have spoken up and said, oh, the governor is acting like he has the complete authority to do whatever he wants. That's what the budget chair uh, in the assembly, Phil Ting, said. Uh, the Senate budget chair, Holly Mitchell, uh, said we've repeatedly asked the governor to work with the legislature, but he refuses and just expects us to rubber stamp uh, whatever he comes up with. So those are some pretty strong statements, uh, albeit they're just that statements. Uh, they haven't really been backed up by any action. And when it comes to the overall legislature as a whole, the response has been really, uh, really quite sad. I mean, the, the leaders of the legislature have basically decided to take the year off. Uh, they uh, recessed for 12 weeks uh, back when the state of emergency began. Uh, they've allowed the legislature to recess for the last four months of the year. So if anything, they've aided and abetted uh, Governor Newsom's one-man rule. And what's interesting is now even the, the governor's lawyers in our case have made a big deal about how, uh, you know, the plaintiffs are just me and James Gallagher. It's not the whole legislature. The whole legislature hasn't joined our lawsuit. And they point out, because in Michigan, the legislature actually did as a whole right. did the lawsuit. Right. And so we're like, well, okay, I mean, you bring up a good point. Our legislature <laughs> has been a lot more useless uh, than Michigan's has. Um, but that's all the more reason why we've had to turn to the third branch of government, the courts, in order to restore the proper constitutional balance. So... That is bizarre. I, I, I just find that bizarre behavior for a legislature to just to, to, as you say, aid and abet and to just sort of bow out of doing anything. Is there a remedy for that? Is, is that are they violating their oaths of office or, or something? Is there that just seems wrong to me? Yeah, it is wrong. I mean, the remedy is to vote them out, you know, <laughs> if uh, mm. Uh, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, check that exists for uh, a shoddy performance by legislators. Of course, uh, we have a lot of ways in which our system is, uh, you know, sort of distorted so that you uh, make it more difficult uh, to hold people accountable. But, you know, the uh, one of the issues in our case is there's this idea of the non-delegation doctrine, which uh, is that, you know, the legislature cannot forfeit its powers to the governor, even mm-hmm. if it wants to. 
That's mm-hmm. not something our constitution allows. So if the legislature's, you know, wanted to pass a law saying, all right, we're going to just let the governor rule the state and be, act as both the legislature and the governor, uh, it couldn't do that even if it wanted to, because right. we're supposed to have a representative government. Uh, and when you put all powers in, in one person's hands, you don't have that. So that's one of the arguments that's come up in the case is that just even if the legislature wants the governor to do this, it can't abdicate its responsibilities. Right, right. And so that kind of gets to my bigger question, which is, what really are the fundamental principles that are at stake here? Well, I'd say there's three related principles. There's the rule of law, there's separation of powers, and there's Republican government. You know, the first, the rule of law being the the vital idea that written words are binding on people in positions of power and constrain the actions that they can take. That's what actually allows us to be free from, you know, the arbitrary uh, dominion and control uh, of another person. Uh, and uh, that is related to separation of powers, which is that we distribute powers throughout different branches of government so that powers are checked and no one person can aggregate and accumulate and abuse uh, too much power uh, for themselves. And then the final thing, of course, is Republican government, the idea that power is supposed to be ultimately vested in the people of our state uh, who are able to make their uh, wishes uh, known and uh, acted upon. Uh, through the election of representatives who participate in government and who, uh, you know, uh, provide a process that the public itself can participate in. And all of those things, of course, uh, are undermined and collapse uh, when you have a governor who has proclaimed himself to be an autocrat. And it seems it seems to me, you know, when when you, at least here in California, um, there are a lot of people who don't really understand that this is a republic and who think think of our system of government as a democracy. And, you know, again, living in California, what, what that seems to mean is that this group of people up in Sacramento get to vote on how I live my life and, you know, whether I can use plastic bags or not and all, all this crazy stuff that, that, you know, my friends out of state laugh at me for. Um, how do you, how do you, uphold things like the rule of law, separation of powers, and a Republican government when so many people who live here don't seem to care about those values. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, which is that what's happened this year with uh, COVID-19 and the uh, abuses of power that uh, we've seen from Gavin Newsom um, are, you know, singular in character, but uh, really are just kind of the usual undemocratic practices of our state on steroids. Uh, and yeah. uh, for a long time, uh, we've had uh, a government that has become less and less Republican in nature. And the, the example you gave is a good one because uh, as the state has continued to centralize uh, more and more power in Sacramento, in the legislature, in the governor, in Sacramento-based bureaucracies, that, of course, leads to a corresponding uh, reduction in authority uh, for local communities. And it's at the community level where citizens really have the ability to engage, to participate, to make their voice heard. And so uh, that sort of centralization of uh, authority in Sacramento uh, has been uh, eroding the Republican character uh, of our state government for years. And now that all of the power is not only in Sacramento, but in the hands of one person in Sacramento, mm-hmm. just sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, makes that even more extreme. But maybe the, the flip side of it is that, you know, you say people have been putting up with this. Well, now people are seeing, you know, in a very uh, clear way 
uh, mm-hmm. problem and it's in sharp relief. And so I think that uh, perhaps uh, it's uh, serving to at least give people a window into the way things work in California and uh, how we've actually been losing our, our freedoms uh, as citizens for a long time now. And perhaps it will lead to a, a movement in the other direction to try to get back to the, the Republican roots of our country. Yeah, um, I, I do feel like there's there's something of a wake up, sort of a wake up call going on. You know, it's it's unfortunate that it's taken this much because I mean, people have lost their livelihoods, yeah. people have lost their businesses. Um, you know, it's it's been devastating on so many different levels. But I hope you're right. I hope you know that this this serves to kind of wake people up to you know this doesn't happen overnight. You know, the California's been been going this way for a long time. What do you see? I mean, obviously, the your lawsuit could have could have a big impact, but do you think do you, do you think more than that is is needed when you talk about like a movement? What do you see as a solution to this bigger problem of centralization of power in California? What what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a uh, it's a hard question, and I think that. Um, you know, a, a lot is going to depend upon um, the direction that we take things from here, from this point where we've kind of brought ourselves as a state to a new low and where, um, you know, the the checks and balances and the constitutional uh, structure that we have has, has really collapsed entirely. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it would certainly be easy just to, you know, whenever this ends, if it ever does, uh, you know, go back to uh, to the usual way of doing things, which were pretty bad. Um, but if we have, you know, we have so many people right now who are so, uh, you know, engaged in, in trying to fight back. And, you know, I see more energy and, and discontent uh, in our populace than, than I ever have. And if we're able to provide, a, you know, uh, a way to channel that into uh, a movement for, uh, for political change to demand greater accountability in government, to grant greater openness in government, to uh, reverse the tide of, of centralization, uh, then, uh, you know, maybe that, uh, maybe that might be possible. I mean, it's, it's often out of, uh, I mean, you know, there's really been no event like this, but it's out of, uh, when, when, you, when you see this sort of overreach, you know, by those in power, then uh, that's often what can catalyze um, uh, something uh, entirely different. So that's kind of what I'm looking at, is how can I play a role in trying to bring as many people as possible together to make sure that uh, we not only end this Newsom autocracy, but that we uh, you know, go to something better than what we had before. Yeah. One, um, one solution I hear a lot about, and I've had Sheriff Mack on my show before, talking about the power of sheriffs, the power of, of, um, of local power, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm an advocate for, uh, you know, uh, devolving much more uh, power to the local level. And, uh, you know, whether that be the, the law enforcement uh, authority that a sheriff holds um, or the um, education authority that uh, school boards or, uh, you know, uh, charter schools, uh, other uh, educational uh, authorities hold, or whether it be, uh, you know, all facets of, of community life, uh, that um, these decisions are usually best made uh, as close to the affected communities as possible, uh, because that's what allows for the policies to be tailored uh, to the nature of those communities, uh, to their values, to their way of life, and what, it's what allows people to most directly 
participate and to uh, be able to choose the people, the representatives like the sheriffs uh, who will be making decisions on their path. You know, as it is now, uh, parts of the state like mine or the, the North state uh, are subject to a, a central state government that is controlled largely by Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so there's uh, very little sense that the, the government represents their values, but, but quite to the contrary, uh, you have these sort of extraneous values being imposed on them. And so are you, are you in um, Yuba County? I'm in, uh, no, I'm close. I live in Placer County. Okay. So, um, Totally unrelated, but I'm just curious. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the state of Jefferson movement? Yeah, so I've been uh, very, uh, you know, involved in uh, connecting with folks uh, involved in Jefferson. I've been to many of their meetings the, for the Placer County chapter, for the El Dorado County chapter, even for some of the other farther north chapters like in Reading uh, and others. And I think it's been a tremendous outlet for bringing uh, to public attention and to organizing people around the one of the core uh, problems in our state, which is the, the lack of representation, particularly mm-hmm. or areas that you know Jefferson encompasses, where you have you know one state senator, one state assembly member, and uh, uh, very little voice at all. In the, right, in the and very little in common with Los Angeles or San Francisco. I, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you do you see it going going forward? Do you, do you feel it's it's more just of a place for people to come together and share those values, or do you see it going forward with its plan? to create a state of Jefferson? Well, I think that, you know, people who are involved will acknowledge that uh, bringing that to fruition is a, uh, you know, (laughs) maybe a uh, long-term process. And there's a lot of uh, obstacles standing in the way, such as the U.S. government uh, agreeing with the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean that the the community and the movement uh, isn't uh, worthwhile because uh, Mm -hmm. they do have other sort of subsidiary goals they bring lawsuits based on the Second Amendment, for example. Uh, and they, uh, you know, I think are a, it's a great uh, tool for, for organizing uh, and, uh, and, yeah, to bringing these issues to public attention and to uh, trying to, you know, catalyze change in other ways. Yeah. Um, one, you know, when I, when I read about the, because there have been several lawsuits across the country, I think the Michigan one really stands out. But when I read about that, what's frustrating to me is, okay, they have an injunction against these orders, the governor has to stop doing this, but this person has has caused real damage to people's lives. I mean, in terms of costing people their livelihoods, in some cases, you know, as with, with Cuomo in New York, probably actually cost, cost thousands of people their lives um, and, and just harm on so many levels. And yet, these lawsuits don't seem to provide any kind of remedy in that. They, there's, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any penalty for that. It's like, okay, you have to stop doing this, but we're not going to put you in jail. You know, we're not going to make you pay all the losses you've inflicted on these people. Is, is there a way to create real disincentives for politicians to do these kinds of things in the future? Something that would actually cost them? Well, I mean, if they lose their re-elections, that's a real disincentive, you know. Uh, and uh, of course, there's a recall going on for Gavin Newsom right, right now. That right. doesn't succeed. He's on the ballot in 2022. And if uh, if he loses in a blue state and it's a referendum on his abuses of power, then I think that provide a real incentive for governors in the future uh, not to use a you know crisis or emergency uh, to you know do what he's done, which is to rule the state by decree. Mm-hmm. And do you think this the same? Do you think the same that same message will get through to the legislators 
that have really supported him in this? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think that uh, it's obviously we're in the middle of an election right now. We'll see how that how that goes. I mean, it's a little harder, I think, to hold legislators accountable simply for you know aiding and abetting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, those races are less uh, you know high profile, and, and individual legislators are not necessarily the uh, the ones that uh, the public views is responsible for all of this. Uh, but I do think that, you know, uh, it's possible that uh, if, you know, the say my party has a unified message that, you know, uh, we need to uh, elect people who or hold people accountable for, for allowing this to happen, then uh, maybe you could sort of have a, uh, a wave type uh, election that would change things. And do you think, do you think California Republicans are unified in that? Yeah, I think, you know, we've had a lot of encouragement from folks in our party as to this lawsuit that we're undertaking. And uh, I think that, uh, yeah, uh, folks are pretty unified in the opinion that the governor has way overreached. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. And you're up for re-election again. So, um, so we'll, I'll make a note of that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I think this could, this could be, um, this could be a, a, an important win. Um, so we'll be, we'll be watching it closely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, any, any parting thoughts, anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, no, I mean, those are great questions and, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of other things to try to restore, uh, the, uh, principles of self-government, uh, back, uh, here in California. Uh, the lawsuit is one part of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that, uh, uh, the more folks we can sort of get involved in this effort, who speak up, who get the the word out, then uh, you know the the better our chances of making a, an impact. Okay, great. Well, I'd probably I'd love to have you back on once after the ruling to talk about yeah, what happens. Right. So, um, thanks again. All right. Thanks okay. for having me. All right. Bye.